Greetings, and welcome to the very first episode of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast, a series of conversations about jazz and metal. I'm your host, Hank Steamer. As some of you might know, I've been publishing interviews like this online for about seven years, and the reason for transitioning to the podcast format at this point is pretty simple. I've had a great time doing the interviews, I've gotten some awesome feedback, and I simply want to do them more frequently. If you're interested in learning more about the series thus far and reading the conversations I've had with everyone from Craig Taborn to Bill Laswell, please go to heavymetalbebop.com. My first guest on the podcast version of Heavy Metal Bebop is someone I've wanted to speak to for a long time, and that's drummer Dave King. I'm sure he'll need little introduction from many of you. Dave is probably best known for his work in the Bad Plus. He's worked with a ton of other groups, including Happy Apple, uh, the Dave King Trucking Company, and this sort of punk fusion group called the Gang Fawn, which we discuss here. Dave is a virtuosic jazz drummer, but he's also someone who has a real understanding of and appreciation for the world of rock and metal percussion. Just a real quick note about the audio. Dave and I spoke in the home of Tim Byrne, the brilliant saxophonist and composer, and Dave was staying with Tim last fall when he came into town to perform with the Bad Plus at the Village Vanguard. At a few points in the interview, you might hear Tim practicing saxophone very faintly in the background, and I'm sure many of you will not mind that in the slightest. Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, You'll hear a little bit of Dave playing with the Bad Plus and then my conversation with Dave King. topics to cover but one thing you know in reading other interviews you would list drummers you you would you would list you know obviously you've spoken about Paul Motion and all sorts of jazz drummers yeah. um but like Vinny Appice, I yeah. saw him come up in a few interviews and I thought that might be like an interesting place to start just in terms of like you know obviously Dio is a huge band but Vinny is maybe not the name that everyone throws out he's maybe not the first metal drummer that everyone would mention I'm just kind of wondering like what you know start there like what is it about him yeah yeah, because that's that's a great place to start with me because I, I don't want to presuppose that when you're speaking with Craig or Dan or all these other guys that go into the gore guts death metal scene, they go into, you know, I know that there's a lot of Meshuggah influence and all these yeah. other things. Um, my metal um, background is much more um, the British New Wave metal of Judas Priest, sure. um, Maiden, um, Black Sabbath yep. with Dio, especially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and these things that I, of course, have delved into other forms and 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 like different things. But I mean, like things like even like Anthrax or Megadeth or things like that would be more, uh, you know, um, you know, um, in the zone of stuff that I can talk about eloquently. Totally, I can talk about Meshuggah. I can talk about some of these things like that. But so when you bring up someone like Vinny Appice, yeah, the reason why I mention him so much because it, it, to me one of the connections I made to certain and also Nico McBrain for sure of Iron Maiden yeah, sure. is, is personally how those guys seem to um, they seem to play like they weren't concerned that the genre had to be a certain thing I find them both I use the word idiosyncratic a lot in the interview but I think both of those two have this sort of uniquely idiosyncratic approach to what you call metal drumming. Yeah. Uh, starting even with the single bass drum. Yeah, not, absolutely. Not having a double pedal or anything yeah. like that. Right. 
but but also this sort of um i think both of them their influences uh especially vinnie appleseed come from a from a space outside what you'd call metal uh-huh. or or um you know and so i think my interests in as a kid in jazz and prog rock and fusion and all these other things when I was twelve and yeah, thirteen yeah. when all that stuff started to, uh, you know, I was playing drums for about a few years. But you know, you know, getting into the zone of like what leads to this. So I got into also some like noise rock stuff like Pure Ubu and sure. and then I got into some bands like Bad Brains. Yeah. And all the connections that were for me were were not so much like I wore my jean jacket that had my Iron Maiden patch or something. Yeah. It was more like music, music, music. What is what are these guys doing? Totally. And I gravitated towards Vinnie Apice immediately because he had a style. When you listen to these Dio records, or if you listen to the Black Sabbath records mm-hmm. he's on, mm-hmm. immediately he stands out as. Uh, uh, doing things you would never hear anybody do, especially with a small drum kit. For sure. Yeah. And and um, different hi-hat accents. It's, if you get into like this this drum world talk, yeah. he sounds almost like, I always say he sounds like Steve Jordan playing metal. Interesting. You know? yeah, He's yeah. got this sort of like, the feel is incredible, and is. he yeah. seems very much more aligned with some other drum tradition mm-hmm. that he's simply laid on top of. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Joey Barron did with, <laughs> with the avant-garde. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like yeah. he took a early jazz traditions and he threw it on top of the 80s avant-garde. Totally. And it's like Vinnie Apice, Nico McBrain, those two stand out to me, and I, th- I believe they're friends, which I think okay. is pretty great. In fact, I think in the in the Iron Maiden documentary that came out where they're flying their own plane yeah, around, Flight, Flight 666, yeah. which is so good. Great movie, yeah. It's so good. And I think there's a scene with them hanging out together in oh, Los okay. Angeles, and I went, oh my God, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like those two have this sort of, I don't know, they seem like they come from a different ethos. Yeah. Yeah. So that to me, even being 13 years old and hearing that first, you know, Holy Diver sure. or something, it was like raw. Yeah. It had there was a rawness to that sound. He was playing like concert toms, mm-hmm. you know, like that. The, and all of a sudden, the fills would happen that were so strange. Yeah. If you go back and listen to that. They're like, <laughs> what is he doing? Yeah, yeah. To me, that made me get interested in the idea that you know, again, I'm surprised by genres and and how they. To me, I don't see. I, I never saw like, well, I'm this guy that's into metal. I'm this guy into punk rock. I'm this guy into jazz. I'm this guy in the avant-garde. I just saw it all as like personalities and things I gravitated towards. Right, for sure. So that's that's my introduction to that kind of thing came through, and that's why I mention Vinnie Apice whenever I can, because I think that m- there are a lot of jazz guys um, of our generation that cannot claim this pure relationship to jazz. It's completely ridiculous. Absolutely, yeah. Right. And um, and if you if you if you if you found jazz through the lens of prog rock, like you know, like I know Dan Weiss is a massive Rush fan. Absolutely. Yeah. And and um, you know, I loved Rush when I was 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And and like I just feel like the connections that our generation of, of improvisers make between all these musics, we I think we all gravitate towards this sort of like idiosyncratic progressive approaches to whatever genre it is sure sure and so that's why i mention him a lot and also like i say nico mcbrain and of course these incredibly sophisticated math drumming going on in a lot of the the death metal scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. of today yeah, yeah but in 1980 you know 1982 yeah when i heard the mob rules you know i was like wait a minute yeah, this yeah. is not this isn't you know 
this isn't the this isn't for instance, this isn't Dave Holland on the Judas Priest records. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something. This isn't Lars Ulrich. This is something else. Yeah. That's all very good, but it's very rational. Okay. Okay. You know, yeah, what no, I mean? I hear what you're where there's a very deep irrational <laughs> scenario going on when you listen yeah. to Iron Maiden records yeah, yeah, yeah. with Nico McBrain. For sure. The fills, even this drum setup, is so confusing. Where mm-hmm. half the kit, the toms are covered with cymbals. Right, 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 right. Check out those photos <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening out there. Like, check out some photographs of Nico McBrain behind his drums. Yeah, set. yeah, yeah. And there's like four toms that you can't actually play, but they're set up. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing like both those players you mentioned, like they're they're incredibly laid back. Yes. Like the feel is amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. something that I think of with those two guys. Yeah. I mean, but did, now did you have like a reference of? Uh, like a love for the earlier Sabbath, and then you, and then the sort of the Dio Vinny thing came in, and you were comparing them, or were you mainly first? Into no, them? I loved the early Sabbath. You know, I had an older brother who who, who liked hard rock yeah. and metal and things like that, and he I, he, I have to credit him to hipping me to most things. Uh, he's two years older than me, and so I'd be nine years old, and he's playing me records on his bed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd listen to Led Zeppelin, The Who, and all that stuff with some yeah. incredible drumming. And I was really, at 10 or 11, I was getting really into the police, and I also liked a lot of new wave music mm-hmm. at the time. I, I, you know, I dug the early Cars records, and, you know, like the ones that are weirder, like Panorama and uh-huh. things like that. And then, like I said, I liked Pure Ubu and some of the Talking Heads stuff. And, I was, and my brother would play me this hard rock stuff, and I loved Sabbath. And I love these things. And like I said, it didn't get into the deep crevasses, if you will, of like the metal culture. It was more like, hey, man, you know, like this is this is great music. I didn't sit there and think like I I thought it was really unique music. And and that's why I cite Iron Maiden as well. If I hear Iron Maiden to this day, I mean, I want to hear I want to hear it. (laughs) Like like I'm not like sitting. You know what I mean? It's like that one song at a time. I'm not going to sit there and like spend my days listening to Maiden records. Yeah. But if somebody puts on even like peace of mind, I'm yeah. not going to complain. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, Why would you? Like, like Holy Diver, you know, some tune off Holy Diver comes on. Yeah. I mean, I'm psyched. Yeah. And it, and it brings me to a space that isn't just based on nostalgic teenage. To me, it's highly musical still. Yeah. Absolutely. And within the genre, it's incredibly unique music, and it's very personal music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Vinnie Apice plays with a very... Per- In fact, when Heaven and Hell, the band, got back together as Black Sabbath, but not they couldn't use the name. Right. Because of Ozzy, I'm sure. Um, you know, I went out and bought that record that day. It's a you good know? record. It's great. A really good record. It's great. Yeah. And you hear Vinnie Apice dealing just like he did. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I regret never getting to see them live, you know, with that lineup. Mm. And um, I ended up meeting Geezer Butler. Geezer Butler is a black, is a, a Bad Plus fan. Wow. It, it completely floored us. He came to our, a show we did maybe 12 years ago in Los Angeles. Wow. And he came backstage and he said to us, uh, his, our cover of Iron Man was his favorite cover of any Black Sabbath tune ever. And then he said the same thing in Hit Parader in, in print. That so, must have been incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, we were like, Ethan didn't care much, but Reed and I were like, whoa. And there's Geezer Butler saying this to us. And it was just a huge like moment of like, it's not nostalgia. It's like these guys made some heavy music yeah, uh, with a real aesthetic and a control over their aesthetic. And I mean, I take that approach to this day. I try to create decision making that's that's based on becoming that's more personal and irrational at times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for a genre yeah, yeah, yeah. i think you could say the bad plus tries to do that or has done that for sure and um not not like 
not not allowed influences that aren't cool or aren't sophisticated, quote unquote, yeah, or whatever. Uh, we allow in everything that that we feel touches touched us to use as improvisational texts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, so just to get like a sense of the timeline, like at that time you're saying, you know, you're in a new wave. Your brother's turning you on to hard rock and stuff like that. Like, is was jazz there then, or jazz is after rock for you? No, it was. It started to become there as well. Oh. But again, like really straight ahead jazz from my dad's records. Uh, listening to stuff like you know, you know, he would have like Count Basie and, and which was wonderful, and like Oscar Peterson and things yeah. like that. But I, it was like it was like this thirst for something different or progressive, you know. And mm-hmm. so, and then meets this sort of also thirst for a visceral heavy experience and that's what turned me on to things like bad brains and Husker Du and things like that being from Minneapolis you know you have Husker Du and the replacements suicide commandos these these great hardcore bands and and also very melodic like the replacements and 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 Husker Du were like great songwriting for sure and so you you could just see how it starts to coagulate like this sort of like um interest in progressive interest in the progressive mm-hmm. and then and not in the prog rock sense in the in the in the in the same sense of of like discovery of how these complex musics come together yeah. and how they can come together for somebody of that age in the early 80s mm-hmm. and um it was a very i suppose a golden age to be 10 years old 12 years old when you're hearing like you know you're hearing the talking heads and you're yeah. hearing pure ubu and you're hearing bad brains and you're hearing you know um you know dio and you know iron maiden and you're not sitting here going oh i can't listen to both those or i you know i gotta like you know i can't you know or, or then you're hearing john coltrane yeah. or you're hearing pharaoh sanders i'm not sitting or ornette i'm not sitting around making you know i'm not delineating hierarchy hierarchical thinking yeah. to like when i hear ornette coleman i'm hearing punk rock mm-hmm. i'm hearing the essence of some idiosyncratic personal music yeah that to me it all blended together in a in a in a really just an excitement for the new or excitement for somebody making a statement that felt like it wasn't following everybody and so and so at that time with all that stuff coming together were you actively on the drums trying to work some of this stuff out or or was that yes you were absolutely And that's why I can say even if you want to get nerdy with the drum scene, even if you go back and listen to Holy Diver with Vinnie Apice or Apice, you know, you can say it yeah. both ways. I guess he's, I guess he his did that. His brother Carmine a says a he, piece, and I think Vinnie says, yeah, I think they do it to even be separate identities. It's so strange. Yeah. I, it, I've heard it so many different ways, and I yeah. guess Vinnie Apice is the way he prefers it. So I'll say yeah. that. <laughs> um, is that um, even just hearing on the first tune on Holy Diver, which I think is called Stand Up and Shout, yeah, uh-huh. the drumming is incredible. Yeah, It's just straight up incredible. There is no way you can just sit down at a drum kit and be like, well, that's how I'm going to play this sort of like straight ahead <laughs> fast rock tune. Right. It's like he's playing this very odd hi-hat accents. The fills are, are very strange for the music. Coming around not crashing, not playing on the one. Yeah. Um, incredibly fast tom... 30 second no fills that seem like they come out of nowhere <laughs> things that sound bonham influenced but they're more dry they're less like uh, you know a, a wrecking ball coming at you yeah. they're, they're more like they're more deft somehow uh-huh. and of course i'm the biggest john bonham fan ever but vinnie vinnie uh, apathy has this sort of deftness to it too yeah. it's like the dead snare drum sound mm-hmm. so the snare sounds almost new wavy <laughs> you know yeah, the whole sound of yeah, because I've always thought of Vinny as coming out of Bonham, but the, the records sound totally different. Totally, yeah. Dead toms, like I said, you, the toms sound like they're duct tape. Yeah, 
Um, so in, may, in many ways, this is going to be a real stretch for the jazz guys, but I'm a big Ed Blackwell fan. I would say that, that Vinny Apice is not that far away from a form of Ed Blackwell as far as the sound. Yeah, yeah, for sure. With this sort of, you know, the toms of the late 70s, early 80s, old New Dreams records. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there's something there. I, a connection was made with me. The sloshy hi-hat playing, mm -hmm. you know, strange ride bell patterns. Which remind me of a lot of great Afro-Cuban patterns, mm -hmm. Afro-Caribbean music mm -hmm. that 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 um, that of course Blackwell turned into his own personal language. I mean, to me, man, there's so there's so much there. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're both like you said. The sound is really dry. They're both. It's like in the sounds like very articulate. You totally. Know what I mean? Like that's sort of like the Blackwell thing is like yes. very crisp. Like the rhythms are just yes. sort of like almost marchy and very yes. like and right. very personal too. Yeah. Like this is what I do. And you hear that when you hear Vinnie Apathy. It's like, this is what I do. And and I have to say again, Nick, Nico McBrain. Yeah. It's similar vibe. Mm -hmm. Like when you listen to those Maiden records, it's like, what's he doing back there? Mm -hmm. Some of the some of the fills, the ride symbol, um ride symbol. And then when you see footage of him, he looks like he's barely touching the it's like he's oh, yeah. completely comfortable looking, literally zero stress. Yeah. Zero stress in his face, zero stress in his arms. He appears to be playing not very hard. Yeah, not at all. And it's like, man, that's so cool. Like, I immediately gravitated towards how new and unique that was. Like, mm -hmm. Stuart Copeland, for instance, plays twice as hard as Nick McBrain. <laughs> yeah, it's you true. Know? And, it's like, true. playing, of course, the most... I mean, Stuart Copeland, I would consider to be the greatest rock drummer, my, personally, that's ever played the music. I mean, I don't even... I, I mean, I don't think that'd be too hard to argue yeah. that he left a mark drumming-wise that is probably not going to be touched mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. far as like a guy in a rock band yeah I mean, you could say zeppelin you could say all these other guys but keith moon you could say all that all day long mm -hmm. but i'm sorry as far as like a straight up unbelievable sophistication and feel Stuart copeland is the man and man Vinny apiece is not far behind yeah as far as i'm concerned yeah. on these just contribution that is very unsung and but when you get some drummers together and talk about it they're like oh yeah for I sure know, you know and craig is someone who'll <laughs> talk to talk, knowing the value of Vinny, you know yeah 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 um but but so 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 the prog the prog was also in the mix then like 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 80s rush is happening at the same time yep like, yep and even even deeper 70s rush you know i would say that a rush rush kind of rocked me when i got to hear things like 20 21 12 yeah, yeah. And, and hemispheres but i did get more into like the permanent wave signals those things and i also loved yes because you know i'm mean, bruford sounded so amazing and also alan white's one of my favorite drummers yeah, yeah. Uh, the ridiculous feel and Alan White's pocket oh, is yeah. completely ridiculous. This yeah. isn't some like cold, um, prog rocky kind of like whatever. I'll put Alan White's feel up against anyone's mm -hmm. pocket. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but yeah. it's yeah, it's heavy. Yeah. It's it's and that's like very again personal, incredible touch. So yeah, all of that was bleeding itself in. Uh, you know, Rush, yes, and 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 you know, I, I guess. You know, the Holy Trinity for me would have been Genesis, mm -hmm. and of course Phil Collins being so brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so ridiculous. And again, the thing that all these guys have in common, maybe minus Neil Peart, even though Neil Peart's like one of my great heroes when I was a kid, and I have nothing but respect for him. I wouldn't put Neil Peart's pocket on the level of Alan White and Bill Bruford, or or nowhere near Phil Collins or Stewart or any of these guys. But Neil Peart's pure. Um, 
pure uniqueness and the contributions he made to the to 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 drumming in general but just the 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 ideas you never heard before he did them yeah i mean so ridiculously goes without saying like one of the one of the great drummers of the 20th century mm -hmm. and and um you know but like like i say i'm repeating myself here but but genesis and yes or should be in there as well for me in fact i to this day will go back and listen to the first song on, and then there were three, and the drumming is insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the, unbelievable. The, um, that that crazy, that crazy. Da, yeah, na, 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 yeah, na, yeah. That one. Yeah. Or the first, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> or what is he doing? Yeah, you know? it's unreal. Yeah. I mean, you, you could easily say Phil Collins has the pocket of like Motown, which is where he was coming from yeah. so deeply. He's so he was so influenced by those records, and but with the most. I mean, incredible command over odd time, and uh, and also like much more irrational than than someone like Alan White or Neil Peart. When you listen to Phil Collins dealing back then, yeah. the first song on Duke even, uh -huh, uh -huh. he's got this sort of like sit down and try and transcribe that if you're a drummer. It's yeah. very mysterious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he's and you could say that Genesis in many ways had some of the most sophisticated odd rhythms of the prog power groups, mm -hmm. the biggest groups. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, we can. You know, we can list nine million other minor bands, but the main groups, the drums. I mean, for me, that was a huge thing. Absolutely. Then. And I can, I, I, I mean, I think I can say without question, I owe Phil Collins. Uh, you know, like me and many drummers, uh, it should it should be stated over and over what he contributed to drumming. Mm. It's completely ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, I guess I'm I'm wondering about like when when did like seeing you know, punk, hardcore, metal, prog, seeing any of this stuff live, like mm -hmm. were there certain experiences seeing some of this heavier stuff live that really started, like as opposed to the records, yeah. it really started to be important. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, seeing Bad Brains um, at an all-ages show in, in Minneapolis and, and also seeing things like Sonny Chirac, Sonny, uh, Sonny Chirac with... Um, with um, Shannon Jackson, oh, wow. of course, and um, and uh, Vernon so you, Reed. So you saw that Last Exit, or I didn't see Last Exit. Okay, um, I did see Bro Broatsman in, in the in the mid '80s at the Walker Art Center, and I saw Sonny Chirac there as well. See, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis—that's where Craig would have seen a lot of this as For well. For sure, yeah. We were able to see. I know Last Exit came, but I didn't see it. I wish I would have. That was one of my bands. Um, I'm, you know, maybe it was probably in eighth grade. <laughs> it's like yeah. being able to go to some of these, but also seeing Husker Du. In the at 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 First Avenue and Seventh Street entry, seeing those groups back then was huge, and seeing Bad Brains back then, um, to me, combined of course with Bad Brains, you combine a lot of progressive um, uh, with uh, rhythms with with a completely relentless um, uh, visceral attack. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course you have the the, the dub qualities and reggae qualities mm -hmm. that they were using, and and the, this just seems so strange and and like from another galaxy to me. All of this stuff bled into people like you know me and Craig, and because mm -hmm. and, and, we did grow up together and and talked about seeing a lot of these shows together. They were in the audience without even knowing it at the time. Oh, so you you were you were not at the shows like literally together. Oh, we went to shows together. Yeah, most, mostly at the Walker. Right. But Craig saw different different all ages hardcore shows that I was like, wait, you were there? I saw that show. We, you know, we 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 have known each other forever. But you know, you, when I was fourteen, it wasn't you know Craig and I weren't like 
inseparable. Sure. We, knew, we knew each other from playing the music as kids on this little scene in right. the junior highs. Right. You know, it's like, oh, there's Craig, you know, because he went to a different school. Yeah. So, uh, but I just knew him because there was that guy who was an incredible piano player totally. when he was that young. I mean, yeah. Craig was that good back then, believe it or not. So, yeah, we, we just, and I think that bleeds into our collaborations today. He and I can sit and talk about being into the Blue Nile. Yeah. You know, like eight late, like great synth pop totally. or, or like whatever, like with the same f- f- uh, ferociousness as we can talk about being into John Coltrane for sometimes, sure. you yeah, know? For sure. And I just think that's an honest appropriation of our generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're the last LP generation. You know, we're 48 years old. Now it's like pre-CDs, first circle of culture of the LP generation yeah. and the beginnings of punk rock, new wave downtown scene avant-garde neo neo um you know movements in 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 the winton marsalis era mm-hmm. of jazz which we were totally into as well yeah i didn't see any i didn't see any wall between being into bill frizzell and um john zorn and things like that and being into winton mm-hmm. at the same time like the band with jeff tain was yes because they, they, they have yeah. so many progressive rock tendencies in Absolutely. that band i mean if, if there's no way they can deny it those guys come from the 70s. They come from a 70s fusion thing. It's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Watts is a dude Absolutely. who is into so much stuff. He was not this like purist, you know, Elven freak. He was into everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I just, I found that fascinating when I heard Black Codes from the Underground or J-Mood. I heard all of these structures yeah. that reminded me sometimes more of, gen- like, Genesis than it reminded me <laughs> yeah. of, like, John Coltrane. Yeah. You know? And that's this- what's interesting when... I feel like as a, a person reading about all the kind of controversies, that's like one thing. But then you go to the records like, oh, this isn't what everyone says yeah, it is. Come you know? on. <laughs> They're highly, highly arranged. Yeah. Uh, incredible polyrhythmic approaches. Right. Um, these things they're, they're coming from they're coming. I'm not saying these guys were into Genesis. I'm saying, though, that a part of a part of the culture of being alive in the 70s was a, was this melange of all this stuff. Yeah. And you've got the fusion movements and you've got prog rock and they're aware of each other. And you've got, you know, you've got people being influenced by odd time signatures and other things and it's bleeding into everything. And then you've got punk rock coming around and just annihilating shit. Well, you've got also heavy free jazz and these torrential free jazz musicians. I mean, there's some place meeting in there from my generation Mm -hmm. when you're open to it. Well, see, the, the open to it part is the key, though, because I think that there would be a lot of people who could make the jump to like let's say Mahavishnu because oh you know the the cred of playing with Miles or something right. like that but then like Last Exit might be totally off somebody's right. radar and not not to mention Bad Brains right like there's right. a there's some wall that has to come down right. that if you're not a certain like if you're maybe older or something yep. maybe those walls would be up more yeah I agree yeah I agree that's yeah. what kind of the sweet spot of being 11 and you know you got an older brother playing you you know <laughs> you're trying Dio Holy Diver yeah. and the people are listening to Maiden in school and then you're living in a town like Minneapolis which has this hardcore background yeah absolutely and you also have the Walker Art Center which is avant-garde music coming in all the time in the yeah. 80s thank God Chuck Helm who was a, was the programmer of the Walker back then bringing in I mean, we saw you know everybody mm-hmm. um, you know I mean if you were open to it it was like feasting on you know we had to seek it out but it was you were able to draw those connections easy by being open to it and i'd see winton i'd just be like my god yeah i just couldn't believe how how incredible those were early winton bands yeah uh were and i never once thought about 
the 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 sort of hardcore ethos behind you know that it needs to be this and swing is this sure because the thing is is then it wasn't coming from a place of like i don't need to acknowledge that for me i just thought the whole thing was swinging it's just like i thought it was swinging just like the police was swinging i thought it was like you know we can get into all that goes into that but there was a certain pocket to all this music that that to me i was relating to the f- just great feeling swing. when I use the word swing or whatever you know Led Zeppelin is swinging to me and maybe that's uh, uh, maybe that's wrong in some people's eyes but for me at 11 years old 12 years old the fact that I got so into Wynton Marsalis and I also loved Bad Brains I think it shows in what I'm trying to do today. Yeah. Which is a direct homage to a lot of this great music that I don't see the walls. I understand the sociolo- sociological things. I understand the the depth of the complexity of American art making. But man, when you're that young and you're getting hit with that stuff all at the same time and you're and you're heavily into music. I mean, that was a very fertile period to get inspired by it, to mm-hmm. be an improviser. Yeah, I I was wondering like I was wondering about like the the nineties, like because helmet came up, mm-hmm. uh, I think in our emails, um, like in that whole AMREP thing. Mm-hmm. Like, how much of that were you, you know, around for soaking up, like interested in? Like, was that was that whole movement like a big thing for you? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this because the nineties is a complicated for me because. Um, the 90s because i lived in los angeles for a lot of the 90s yeah and um so i sort of missed the amrep minneapolis um moments Mm -hmm. um but i when i first heard helmet like a lot of people i didn't have the amrep first thing i heard the first interscope record from 91 and um meantime sure and I immediately, I was not heavily into grunge or any of that. I was, at this point, that would have been 20, 21, and I was very heavily into the jazz that I loved. You know, I was getting, I was just a diehard Ornette, Old New Dreams, Keith Jarrett, American Quartet, Paul Motion Trio. It was a huge band for me, still yeah. is. Um, and I loved the Keith, you know, Standards Group. I loved the, Absolutely. you know, I had all these records that I was just obsessing over. And then, of course, some of the 90s great, you know, Frizzell bands and and uh, whatever. But I, I was struggling to find a place as a, as a musician in the sort of 90s rock landscape. And I think that, maybe, you know, I love the Pixies and I love, you know, all these. Other, but I mean, Pixies for me was like, wow, what a great combination of some of these ideas. You yeah, know? Uh, totally. Pixies really was a bright light. Yeah. For the moment that they were still around in the early 90s, mm-hmm. 91 or whatever. I'm 89 through 91 or whatever. But, um, you know, um, as far as Helmet, uh, to me, it had this sort of like golden age of Sabbath idea with the math levels that you could hear in some some of the math levels of some of the great death metal bands or, yeah. or, or something like that with this sort of lo-fi palatable seventies grinding mm-hmm. thing. And, and with a great pocket, remember mm-hmm. the, the drummer, uh, John Stanier, yeah, yeah. who went on to do battles. I yeah, believe. Yeah. And I'm glad he's still active. Oh, I mean, yeah. that, 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 I remember that record hitting me like, oh my God, thank God. That's a bright light for me. I mean, I loved, I loved Nirvana. I still think, they, of course, they're one of the great um, groups ever, but but they were a bright light for me. I, I was not into the seattle I mean, with all due respect, I wasn't into the Pearl Jam thing or the Alice in Chains thing. Not the, Soundgarden? 
less than Soundgarden as well. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I understood the references of Soundgarden being this sort of child of Sabbath sure. and some other prog things. I, I, I say this with all due respect. The Soundgarden didn't have the level of the level of. Uh, it's hard to say. It's like the level of some sort of rawness out of the drums. Yeah, you know, you. like some sort of like. Like irrational quality. M- yeah. Matt uh, Cameron yeah, right, yeah. is an incredible drummer and did not be taken away anything. From my personal taste, I wanted a little bit more danger. In yeah, fact, yeah. you could even think about Vinnie Apice and then listen to Matt Cameron. Matt Cameron is like a very detailed, um, right on the head, like every beat is right in the middle of the beat. Yeah. There is no, there is no esoteric quality, I'm sorry. And to me... Especially at that point, I really needed some more esoteric quality. Music. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Soundgarden's a freaking incredible band. There's no way around yeah, it. Yeah, and I dug the references and I dug whatever. But even their sort of like square seven playing kind of annoyed me mm-hmm. as a as a guy who was really into heavy jazz at that point. Totally. Like especially some of the '90s mathier jazz that started to appear. Well, like With maybe the, like Tim or yeah, like yeah. Tim. I mean, Tim was one of my great heroes. Tim yeah. Byrne, you're talking about, yeah. whose house we're in right now. <laughs> um, you know, Tim's bands of the '80s and Miniature and all that, and the Frizzell bands. It was tough to get excited about Soundgarden playing in seven when you were listening to Tim Byrne's <laughs> bands. I'm yeah, sorry, no, you know, for not sure, to sound, sure. not to all of a sudden sound like a snob but that was a snobby period for me yeah. you know i did feel like a lot of the rock music that claimed it was this sort of heavy thing was not making it for me mm-hmm. and nirvana of course br- the songwriting i mean i you know i know dave Grohl gets a lot of like oh dave Grohl's drumming or whatever but to me it was never the reason i dug nirvana mm-hmm. i mean all due respect to dave but like the songwriting was nirvana for yeah me. the power of what cobain was all about and all that i was down yeah but yeah. but um but because it felt to me, it felt like it was coming out of Husker Du. In mm-hmm. fact, I was I would have been more into Nirvana if the drumming was less like Zeppelin. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would have been a little bit more like raw, and well, maybe like on Bleach. Or, yeah, like yeah. less nailed. Yeah, you know, yeah. like somebody back there playing a little bit more like you know what I mean, right. like Vinnie Apice or something. Yeah, know? I think I think that transition, like I mean, because even even on Nevermind, like I think there's a lot of talk about. I think there's a lot of like looped drums on that record. The yeah. production is much more. Yeah. Super. You know, massive. Yeah, and and yeah, and 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 Dave Grohl's an incredible rock drummer. Yeah, but you know, post Nirvana, his true influences kind of came out. You yeah. know what I mean? He's not some pure hardcore guy. I right. Mean, he's a Zeppelin head, and he's into Rush, and he's into all this other yeah. stuff. And you can hear it. He's a great drummer. He has a lot of technique. Well, and also that that Probot thing he did. Yeah. I don't know if you checked that out. Yeah, I did. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Dave's yeah. Dave's all due respect to Dave Grohl. Yeah. But I'm just saying, I'm remembering me at the time. Totally. You know, if I go back now and I listen to In Utero. I'm like, hell yeah, Dave. But, you know, I'm talking 22-year-old Dave King going, you know, I don't know, guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm into the raw punk stuff. Totally. And I'm into the, if it's going to be rock, you know, that's why Helmet, for me, was like a step in the right direction. Yeah. And they were kind of men alone at that time, if you think about it. People could sit there and say, well, you know, Dinosaur Jr., this, and blah, blah, blah. blah. I, don't, I mean, Helmet kind of appeared. Yeah. And they also didn't look the part. And I realized that Paige <laughs> Hamilton had a... Something very sophisticated about the way he would even solo. He had a Sonny Chirac meets Vernon Reed meets something else going on yeah, there. Noise. I don't yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like a Thurston Moore thing meets a whatever. And to me, I could see those references very clearly. Like, this guy can do this. And then they had that record, Betty, and he played Beautiful Love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, listen to me, sounds like Elson. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I absolutely. Yeah. And it felt like, 
it was not ironic and it wasn't you know he's a jazz head you know and so actually years later i a few years ago i actually was communicating with him pretty regularly trying to consider trying to do a project i hope we can still do it at some day mm. we ended up meeting and and um talking about doing something what was was there any thought of what it would be or like some kind of there really wasn't it didn't get that far it was more like wouldn't it be interesting if we if we if we put something together that possibly was more instrumental and showcasing some of the mathier zones that I actually got into more with that this band the gang Fight, oh, absolutely that yeah. i that i did with right. with greg norton of who's yeah. and um with craig um taborn which there's a second record now with a new keyboardist that's coming out oh awesome called uh, the guy named brian nichols and that's fratsky eric fratsky from, yeah. from happy apple on guitar and that band is a perfect example of some of this melange of these ideas. Yeah. It's like pure Ubu meets what? Naked City meets, you know. Yeah, it's like, I, th- I think it was almost like like hardcore meets prog or something. Absolutely. Like it kind of has like a punk approach to prog. Absolutely. You're having, you know, and we've got this punk icon on bass. Yeah. So a lot of it is trying to be true to certain references. Yeah. But then there's also some things that did delve into some West African rhythms and all these other things yeah. that you could say that Bad Brains would have been something or even even inspired by early living color and fishbone yeah because um, i was a huge vernon reed fan yeah, yeah, yeah and so that all was in there as well yeah because that's an interesting like current of like fusion like when you hear those th- there's a lot of like fusion sound to to early fishbone mm-hmm. and, and and living color obviously i mean because mm-hmm. obviously those guys are coming right out of playing with you know shannon and whatever exactly else. that's why that's yeah. how i knew of living color is knowing that vernon and shannon yeah in this band that Vernon had put together, and just white, I just I saw Living Color before they were head blown up. They played to like a half full First Avenue main room. They all had the body glove gear on, <laughs> and I, my brain fell out. It was so good. Yeah, I was like, oh my god. So you were already into the Decoding Society, and like, oh yeah, went there for Vernon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, tell me about like because Shannon is sort of an important important figure. In yes. All this. Like, tell me yeah. about him. And, like, well, yeah. check out is this maybe is. A stretch for some people. It's not for me. Check out Vinnie Appice and check out Ronald Shannon Jackson. Yeah. In this, like, go back and forth. Yeah. And tell me, totally. tell me how many strange connections. The sound, mm-hmm. the strange Tom setups, mm-hmm. or the irrational Tom setups. <laughs> the, the, that's the, a theme. The, the feels, the, <laughs> the feels that feel behind the beat at times yeah. in a way that's so cool, and the swinging. I mean, I was a huge Shannon fan from you know from from Ornette. Yeah. era on and Dakota Society and everything so he was a huge uh, and I saw him at the 7th Street entry in Minneapolis I was probably 14 years old and of course what do you I mean you just your brain falls out when you see that and hear that sound you saw the decoding society yeah okay with Vernon gotcha and was like Melvin Gibbs in it at that time yep okay yep. yeah I have to totally get my memory together because it's talking we're talking 1985 yeah 84 maybe gosh I I want to try and remember. I was very young. It was an all-ages show. Mm-hmm. I remember Vernon held some note for like 15 minutes, it seemed. I mean, mm-hmm. completely unbelievable, like holding some noise note <laughs> while they're all going. So he's holding one note. Yeah. And that early Living Color stuff, too, though. I mean, that record, Vivid, blew my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I can still consider it to be a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. And I loved, you know, and I, and, and that's that to me felt like these sort of outgrowths um, of this sort of like idea of combining these things like Bad Brains in a way that the Clash also felt to me. Yeah. Like the late period Clash. I'm a huge late period Clash fan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into Big Audio Dynamite. Right, 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 right. 
Right. So I was drawing all these funk connections and some of the reggae connections and dub connections, all these things. To me, I felt like the Clash and 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 Bad Brains and Fishbone. Yeah. Uh, having these ska influences, everything. To me, it was just like, wow, listen to all these guys. But they all could just play their asses off, mm-hmm. you know, especially Fishbone. Oh, yeah. I mean, just ridiculous when, when the reality of my surroundings came out. That, again, I'll say 90s. Like, for me... That record was like, and it was too bad that like grunge came around like eight months after that record really blew because Fishbone was looking like they were going to be like, yeah, the what they deserved totally as totally. far as what I <laughs> thought. This is a step in the right direction. Fishbone is a popular Fishbone's blowing up, and Spike Lee's directing their video, yeah. and they're on Saturday Night Live completely blowing people's minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys are brilliant musicians in that band. And they can hang on any level, yeah. you know. And what they were doing that record, I mean, that's the most progressive. I mean, well, I'm yeah. sorry, man. You can't put on a fucking Alice in Chains record when you hear "Reality of My Surroundings" and think they're in the same universe as far as musicality. Yeah, what they were some Saturday, some Saturday. Are you kidding me? You don't hear Maiden in that? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Some of the Saturdays, Maiden, and then that trumpet that's flat at the end sounds like Old New Dreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you actually are thinking about it for a minute, what is Sunless Saturday? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I wish they, I, honestly, I cut, like, I love that track so much that I wish there was a whole Fishbone album that sounded like Oh that. my God, I mean, the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reality of my surroundings, I will listen to to this day and put up against as a piece of art. Yeah. It is, it stands alone as yeah. a serious achievement yeah, as far incredible. as I'm concerned. It's yeah. incredible music. And it just turned, I, I, to me, it was like, this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not into and still never been into the Red Hot Chili Peppers mm-hmm. or, 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 or any of these other sort of West Coast. Um, but Fishbone, um, to me, had this. And, you know, of course, they've continued to make incredible music. But that, that, uh, that moment of like, I could hear this sort of bad brains yeah. outgrowth um, that, that combined all these different styles of music. I could hear the jazz in it. I could hear the avant-garde in it. And I could hear the severe funk of the whole thing. Absolutely. And I was just like, man, if I could make something even remotely that good someday. I remember thinking when I'm 20, hearing that record, 21, going, these guys did it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that 80s Miles vibe in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, which I also loved, you know. I yeah. loved 80s Miles Davis. I loved late period Tony Williams and people don't dig. Yeah, yes. You know? Yes. Um, like, in terms Sorry of, if I'm ranting, but Oh, no, there's no ranting. This, this is great. This is, what we're, this is what we're here for. The ranting Ooh. is, this is what it's all about. Um, but in terms of, like, the playing, because, like, okay, so, so is the gang font, would you say, like, I was wondering about this because maybe there's music that you've done that's undocumented. Like, what is the, what is like the heaviest music you've ever played? That delves into the straight up just very heavy because even in my band Happy Apple, you can hear massive heavy. Right, and not to say that even the Bad Plus gets yeah, super you know, heavy, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, because Happy Apple, because we have this bassist Eric Frasky, who's a Geezer Butler's tone that rolled off all the highs. It's very yeah. Fender jazz with just it literally sounds like it's you know Deep Purple or something. Totally. Which I could say as well was very heavy Deep Purple. If you want to play those those areas of that mixing was a bluesier. Oh, absolutely, Ian thing. Pace. And, incredible. Yeah. yeah, Ian Pace again, incredible drumming and like. That band, I mean, you you see footage of Deep Purple back when they were young, and it's like 
think about if those guys showed up today yeah. in a time capsule, the level of beatdown they would put on rock music. Today. <laughs> it's not even funny, man. They're playing some bar in Brooklyn with some hip indie rock band, and they just decimate the windows, blow out, yeah. and they're like, "Yeah, no, it's true." It's like who live at Leeds? It's the same thing. It's yeah. like, dude, what do these guys think about rock music today? I'm sorry, that's me kind of like getting a little too. <laughs> yeah, well, but know, I mean, think yeah. about it, man. Like, yeah. go back and watch that and go, ah, uh, that's dangerous. It is. Whatever that yeah. is, that's like what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the gang thought elements of that record, that first record, which is called, uh, uh, it, I think it's called Introducing the, uh, the uh, featuring Interloper. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that's what it's called. Um, and the next one is called um, Fractal Mania, which is coming out hopefully this year. Uh, hopefully in 2019, early 2019, awesome. I think I think it is. Um, Greg, I think, has found a home for it. Um, but uh, I think we get into heavier, there's prog elements, there's math rock elements, but there's some straight up, there's a, com- a couple straight up proggy metal moments where it gets pretty fierce and loud and it's got that thing mm-hmm. that's coming out of this stuff that I'm into. Yeah. And I'm playing the single bass drum four-piece kit just like my heroes of that genre would. You know, so it has that also homage to the thing. You know, totally. I don't play a double pedal. I don't. I appropriate whatever double kick things I do with some very tuned low floor tom. I've seen you on the right. So you, funk you're playing. Exactly. <laughs> so if you bring up the Bad Plus, one of the things that is in the Bad Plus's sound is the fact that I play a, basically a death metal floor tom. Yeah. I play a very big floor tom that is tuned to the point where the head is falling off. It's so low. <laughs> and the rest yeah. of the kit sounds like bebop. Right. And of course, you could take endless shit for this. Can I swear? Is that okay? Of course. Yeah. Um, you take endless shit for this in the jazz world, I think, some corners of it that aren't hip to late period Tony Williams yeah, or, yeah. Or, or Shannon. But um, I made it a point to have this sort of schizophrenic tonal relationship in the music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the Bad Plus has utilized that reference point many times where, yeah. the, where the floor tom just swallows the piano whole. And you've got some jazz critic going, it's too loud. It's like, <laughs> it's like you don't think we're in control of what's going on. The whole idea is to have these white noise elements yeah, coming from absolutely. a piano trio, absolutely. which it, I'm sorry to say, I don't think happened before the Bad Plus. Yeah. A piano trio. I'm not talking about Cecil. You know, like what I'm talking about, like where the band, the drums have taken over the piano yeah. in a piano trio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In an irrational dynamic space. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's that a good was way one of the things yeah. that that band focused on is the idea that we're going to take the piano trio and turn it upside down. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like that there's room to do something with that lineup, that classic jazz lineup. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with being honest about your influences. And so he's like, I'm not going to tune the drums in and be this piano trio, classic piano trio drummer. I'm yeah, going to yeah. play the drums like I play the drums, which is I play jazz, I play rock, I play all these things. Mm-hmm. And I play, you know, people to this day are like, you, you, you play straight ahead jazz too. I'm like, of course we do. You know, we come out of a generation of playing all the music yeah. and loving all the music. Right. I mean, uh, you know, not just sort of appropriating it in some sort of cheeky downtown scene way. We were down in there dealing with straight ahead jazz as kids yeah and loving it and and all the streams of jazz and not seeing the differences between these things and that's kind of what i'm basically saying well it's it's interesting what you're what you're saying about that because that's something i've always thought about being a rock fan who sort of uh, like later came to jazz rock and metal and later Mm -hmm. came to jazz like there's a language in jazz where rock is sort of like played in quotes Mm -hmm. like like there's a way that like jazz drummers play like a sort of allude to rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate that when I hear you play in a rock-like way, mm-hmm. that it doesn't sound like in quotes. It right. sounds like 
if you need to go there, like there's a sort of like unleashing that needs to happen right. that is not a part of the, well, it's of course a part of the vocabulary of jazz, mm-hmm. but, but like, it's just, it's its own language the same way that jazz is. And you have exactly. to like go as deep down into the, you know, you most certainly do the, the elements of it to really like play it nat- natively or something. Absolutely. I, I think that, I don't know. I appreciate that you're, Rock like drawing does not sound like it's in quotes. If I could thank say you, that. you know that's one of the things is I I try not to be a tourist anywhere. You yeah. know, so when I'm playing jazz, I'm if I'm playing brushes, I'm playing anything. I'm coming from a space of of studying the Philly Joe brush yeah, book, for sure. Knowing these records just like I know these other records, and look, just like I can sit and talk about Bad Brains or Dio, yeah. I can sit and talk about being you know floored by the early Coltrane records and listening to you know being ten and listening to my favorite things and trying to understand yeah. Elvin Jones or doing whatever, but also listening to Maj Jamal and listening to you know Clifford Brown and listening to you know obviously Charlie Parker and things like that. But I, but then finding my way through the '60s music and 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 falling in love with Ornette. And falling yeah. in love with with the Miles Quintet of the fifties and I mean the great Miles Quintet and then the sixties Miles Quintet. Sure, but 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 that's when I started to realize that the seventies fusion elements I'm not as into as I'm into the seventies rock elements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where there were prog elements. It's almost like I wanted to combine the sixties jazz that I loved and this modal jazz periods. And those characters on the drums from Paul Motion to Tony Williams, those giant figures. Yeah. And then, of course, the later with Jack DeJeanette and people like that were so obvious that Jack loves Jimi Hendrix. He loved Mitch Mitchell. Yeah. And, you know. And Levon Helm, too. Exactly. He's no, yeah. and like Keith, I mean, Keith Jarrett, you could hear that, you know, he wants Levon Helm back there half the time yeah. when you hear Jan Christensen mm-hmm. or you hear all those other things. I think Keith came out saying that, that Levon Helm he was did, one, yeah. his favorite drummer. Yeah. That's perfect for me. That's like that's like I gravitate towards that idea. Yeah. Again, this idea that you know, as a drummer and as what we want to do with the music today, or the, as an improviser, um, I just felt like you know, not not saying, oh, we're playing rock now, and this is my rock bag, and this is my. It was much more like, no, I'm coming straight to the source yeah. of stuff that I ingested at the time. Yeah. That was a part of the DNA of my musical upbringing, right. which it also included Wynton Marsalis's record J Mood, you know, totally. or Branford Marsalis's records, or I could I met Tane, Tane Watts, you know, Jeff Watts, and I mean I could say that that was like meeting John Bonham to me. It's the same exact energy of like meeting one of the gods of the yeah. music, and I don't sit there and think, yeah, but he's the jazz drummer, and then he's this is you know when I meet Pete Thomas, I'm gonna tell him he's my rock influence, you right. know. Sure. These are these are just like masters, and if you want to get in there and deal without a hierarchical sense of thinking, if you want to get in there and deal with punk rock, you know you're gonna to have to deal with some of the great drumming of that era. Sure, and those and that shit. Just like you're gonna to have to deal with how ultimately sophisticated the Ramones were. Right. It's like I, I guess sort of what you're saying is like if you go deep enough, no style is any less sophisticated than any other. I, in a certain sense, I, like in a certain sense, you know, obviously there are, there are. There are different there yeah. there are, you know you can't say all of the music from different styles but there are there are groups in in any genre that I will hold as like listen you, you know don't say it until you can go and do that yeah for sure and you can bring for it sure. that hard and you can do whatever yeah, because yeah. I just I just I don't come from that thinking like because something is a certain way and maybe being a drummer can help in that zone because if you're you know if you're a pianist and you're looking for more harmonic sophistication I'm not sure you're gonna find it in Judas Priest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but if you're looking for that visceral, 
melodic metal thing or the British New Wave metal or whatever. Right, right, right. I mean, there's just no way that you can get beyond how good Judas Priest is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, no, say. but it's masterful. Yeah, yeah. For what that genre is doing, I'm not going to sit there and say for what, because there's a ton of mediocre jazz as well. Absolutely. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm sorry, man, but if, if it comes down to it, I'm going to put on one of those classic records. I'm going to put on, you know, I'm going to put on a Judas Priest record from the era yeah. and, and say, I don't know, man. Do try and do that. Try and make a record that good in your genre. Yeah, exactly. Like right. It's like whatever you're doing. Exactly. Like, yeah. Make back in black, you know? Yeah, I mean yeah. the bad plus we've sat there and said, man, let's we gotta try and make back in black. You know, we gotta try and make a record that's just solid as fuck. Mm-hmm. And just like the tunes are four and a half minutes long. We're not gonna say these long, boring solos. Mm-hmm. And the shit's interesting and feels good and it's yeah. recorded well. And it's avant-garde, and it's weird, and it's yeah. poppy, and it's minimalist, and it's you know it's grid math, and yeah. it's fucked up, and we're gonna <laughs> do it as clear as we can. Absolutely, you know, clarity, yeah. you know. And I took that from that music, the clarity of punk rock, the bluntness of it, everything. Absolutely, but the, there, it's interesting because there's this other, there's this other like quality, like, um, so like okay, like I was saying, playing rock very authentically. Very, you know, as heavy as it needs to be played, like when you're sort of moving in that direction. Right. But there's also this kind of like, because you, you mentioned like weird fucked up. There's also like, if I think of like the Iron Man cover, say, like a lot of like playing with the time, sort of like exactly. yanking things around. Like there seems to be, and I don't want to like paint the whole thing with one brush, but there seems to be a lot of times when a feel like that will break out in one of, say, the Bad Plus's mm-hmm. songs, it seems like there's maybe a tendency to kind of just like, yank it in another direction Mm -hmm. like like get into the pocket and then kind of just mess with it Mm -hmm. like like Mm -hmm. would you say that that's also like an instinct of yours if you're playing in like a rock type way to kind of maybe want to like throw something absolutely absolutely that would that would come from maybe a prog rock tradition or something you know it's they're obvious um you know we're trying to personalize the music number one so instead of just paying homage and just playing it down that's one of the things obviously within jazz we're you know we're improvisers we meet on the playing field of improvising absolutely so even though we're highly arranging these pieces if we're doing a if we do when we did the sabbath tune it's very arranged it's very whatever but within that structure the way we're messing with time and we're we're doing all these different polyrhythmic and also these time warp temporal time fractures of the whole thing if you heard the version it's got these drum fills that go way you have to know where the one i mean you have to really anticipate where the one is coming because they're being stretched yeah well in a way we talked about that being from a tradition of like how elvin jones sometimes would trade fours or trade eights or like jack dg net where it's like man they're just sort of like you know i'm sorry but it's not metronomic totally and that's the shit that's that's like a decision that's being made that's not can't be that's i'm that's from the tradition of anything from odd bar blues country blues to yeah. Sunhouse to, to to robert johnson to anything right. we were coming from the tradition of we're going to stretch the time here and there as improvisers totally it's not this set thing it's not this whatever so we're using all these tools and at the same time the heaviness of it and the bluntness of it not putting jazz chords on it for instance for god's sakes <laughs> there's no need to do that yeah yeah you know and no matter what shit we took from whatever jazz establishment like laughably thinking we didn't know how to put jazz harmony on something. Mm. I mean, Ethan Iverson doesn't know how to put jazz <laughs> harmony on something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's such an easy conclusion judgment. It's like, no, we're, we're, we're working within the construct of the song and the homage to the song. It's just fine playing power chords on it. Sure. Right. And we could turn into a modal improvisational vehicle, these yeah. strong things, but we can also mess with the time the way improvisers do mm-hmm. and improvisers from our generation, especially. Yeah. 
and or we could just leave it alone and just you know like the one we you know we you take shit for like smells like teen spirit but smells like teen spirit our version is very swinging exactly. i'm sorry it is yeah exactly you know what i mean or when we did chariots of fire it could be looked at as like oh ironic hey man you name a heavier melody in 1981 <laughs> when you're a kid yeah. you hear the chariots of fire theme it, to me it was like oh man that's like albert eiler absolutely you hear to me we're hearing all that great albert island yeah, melody yeah, yeah. and all these other things it's like let's make it as grandiose as possible and turn it into a really heavy right you know free jazz statement that's got this huge groove up front that's got zeppelin in it and it got this other shit mm-hmm. you hear this melange of influences being treated equally and at the same time being treated not from some touristic approach we actually do this because this was our life experience you know what I mean? It was I, our life experience to learn that on the piano when you're 10 years old. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking about, like, I was thinking about this idea of, like, um, okay, so we talked about Dave Grohl a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about Sabbath a little bit. Like, the, the, the Rush thing is very interesting because cause you you do the the Tom Sawyer fill. It's, it's like, like, I like the fact that that part you're like i gotta do that part yeah. you know like because you could have not done that right you know what i mean but was that like when you're playing say like a he- like one of these pieces like are you thinking about how much of that original drummer's feel or parts are, are you going to take or something like yeah. and with neil was it like i want that fill or something yeah well again that was a that was a straight homage now that was a four-piece kit version so anyone out there keeping scores that's <laughs> i didn't it's not the exact but it is the homage it is pretty exacting as far as the drum break on Tom Sawyer. Yeah. You're right to say that. Yeah. I only say that because, you know, he's got like 85 toms. Sure, and it's, yeah. I mean, I appropriated, <laughs> I appropriated it for my little four-piece kit. <laughs> it's transposed <laughs> to a four-piece kit. And it's definitely not, you know, it's, 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 it's less completely effective than Neil's version. I can play the Neil ver- version on the bigger kit. And yeah. of course, you grow up transcribing all that stuff if you're into it. Yeah. But... Um, to me, it was a part. That's an arrangement. That's a part of the song. He never changes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so to me, that's like the percussive elements of the Rite of Spring when we did. You know, I had to come up with a drum set score of the Rite of Spring, yeah. but there were a couple of moments where there's a, a tom, a concert tom moment, yeah. or a timpani moment where I had to appropriate. You have to do it. Yeah. I had to do it. So we're playing Tom Sawyer. And it's like, well, we're going in there on the monolith. We're going in there on Tom Sawyer. You know, we're not going to play some obscure, you know, going to sit there and go, oh, we're playing the trees or something. We're going to play yeah. Tom Sawyer, okay? Yeah. It's the tune everybody knows even if you're not into Rush. Mm-hmm. That was the whole point is to tackle these big ones and just go like, yeah, we're playing Tom Sawyer. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Tom Sawyer is great. Right. <laughs> to this day, if I hear Tom Sawyer, I'm like, turn that up. <laughs> so for me, I just felt like, you know what? That's a part of the arrangement that is just iconic. There's no way around. I'm not going to play my my newly minted hip polyrhythmic, you know, <laughs> like, oh, but check out what I'm doing with my feet. And I subdivided this. I play the and on the 32nd note of blah, blah. Right, and the, right. No, I'm going to play the, I'm going to try my best to just appropriate the four piece version yeah. of the Neil Peart drum breaks and Tom Sawyer because that's the song. Sure. Yeah, you know, no, it's, as part, it's as much a part of the song as anything Absolutely, else, yeah. and that's also a mo- moment of homage. The best we can do mm-hmm. is we can say, hey, you know, we're messing with some of the aspects of this tune, yeah. especially the blowing section and all these other things, but 
but we're only doing that in a way that's zero irony again like we get that there can be irony in a piano trio playing something it's not like we're sitting here going what irony <laughs> but our creation of these things is coming from an homage it's from from homage from very personal interesting music that we grew up being inspired by right, right. and someone like Ethan who wasn't growing up listening to it for instance his approach was this is idiosyncratic weird personal music and that's his thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so he always approached any of these rock things with I like that song that's cool totally you know yeah. I don't have a I didn't I wasn't riding around in the back of somebody's car listening to blah blah Iron Man <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but I think this is a very in fact I think he thinks that was one of the best things we ever did mm. I think he stated that many times Ethan did where it was just like this is a powerful piece of music that you can take and just you could just start wailing on and it's gonna put up it's gonna take the take the torture totally yeah, well, yeah, and then to have Geezer, yeah, like that, yeah, that. Or oh, to have him say that even Ethan had a tear in his eye, you know, he's just like, oh my god. Yeah, that's that's that sounds like a sort of like an ultimate moment. Yeah, um, that's that's where you know you did the right, you you paid him. That's where you say like, don't you think Geezer Butler would have felt we were phoning? Like, would he have sensed the touristic approach, or would he have sensed the keeping it real approach? Right. And to have him say that's the shit. For us, it was an incredible validation, just like a validation, the validation we got from Ornette Coleman. Mm, it was, mm. to me, honestly, I have to say it's on the same level. Mm, that yeah. might sound ridiculous to some jazz guys That's out there, <laughs> but to me, there, I could, the only way I can put how I don't think hierarchically on that front is having Geezer Butler say that to me was like, oh my God, I went home feeling amazing that yeah. night. Went back to the hotel going, well, hell yeah. You know, we got through to one of the masters of this art form. He co-wrote the tune. Yeah. His tone, his feel, is it's a part of Sabbath's oeuvre. Absolutely. There it is, man. We we got that cat saying, okay, dudes, that's it. That, you get it. You get it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going, what a neat piano trio version <laughs> with some uh, jazz uh, nerds adroitly yeah. finishing off our masterpiece. Right. It's like, you know, come on. He was like, that rocks, you know. That was good enough for us. Well, I mean, it's sort of interesting because... Okay, so like there's like validation from like a rock or metal master, but like even thinking about like some of the criticism that the band was getting where it was like rock was like I don't know, like 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 rock the rock elements being called out as like um like the fact that you were even doing that was a criticism or something like that. Like like I I don't know, it just must have been difficult to be like really into rock and then being sort of criticized for having these rock elements. I, I don't know. It's it, it, yeah. it, it, it's just strange because it's like you're not you're holding it up as like you said, just another music you love, but yep. it's being held up as like a, a reason why the band is yeah. sort of has this. I don't know. Well, it, it, that that's that's of course at this point, eighteen years later, is an adequated view of the bad plus. Yeah. Thank God, because what we've done is proved over and over again, without a shadow of a doubt, we were way more than a band that played For a Nirvana sure. tune. Yeah. If we would have disappeared after a a version of whatever maybe people might have their doubts even though it was never done and discussed in a way to be like this let's get over by playing a rock and roll song we felt and still feel to this day even though we don't do uh versions of rock music basically anymore very much at all we made a sort of farewell to ethan record of taking on a bunch of stuff from a a record two years ago three called it's hard which has craft work it has also has ornette coleman on it has a bill mchenry tune on it where we took you know barry manilow and craft work and all these things and uh tv on the radio Mm -hmm. and all these things Mm -hmm. and we're just again treating it like this is music to use as a text for improvising um I would say that you know the, that uh, the the shit we took early on, um, being able to have weathered the storm, 
and have now nobody even bats an eye at anybody doing a version of whatever. Mm-hmm. But you combine this sort of like big splash of a Columbia record and all these things is thinking, oh, this is how it's getting over. But for those who have ever given us the chance of known, number one, it's a much more complex emotion and, and structure within that band. Always been predominantly original music sure. since day one. Many records only have one tune or mostly original tune, mm. one cover tune or whatever. And to us, we were always felt like it aligned with the, really, truly with the jazz tradition. Mm-hmm. We really, truly felt like, hey, you know, we feel like a part of we feel like a part of this in the stream of like taking some pop music and messing with it. Absolutely. And we honestly never used that as anything other than like, wasn't that a part of the jazz tradition? I mean, in Duke, isn't that a part of the Duke Ellington? Uh, I mean, what, what are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. You know? And for us, it felt like, are we going to appropriate that? Or are we going to appropriate shit that we grew up listening to? And um, yeah, we could have sat there and played standards all day long. Would that have made it better? Would that have made us more like uh, we just looked at it and went, do we care? You know, we care about making a statement that has more to do with where we come from in our life experience. If you want to talk about playing jazz, knowing the avant-garde, that band can play that music. I'm sorry. But and it's shown it over and over and over again on records and dealt with different texts from contemporary classical music. Which we could either we could also sit and talk about mm-hmm. the fact that we've made all that music and having the respect of the classical music community, working with the Mark Morris dance group, playing the Rite of Spring, doing these things with the same level and care and of for detail and original energy that we would take playing Aphex Twin, take playing Pixies. We take it very took it very seriously, Absolutely. and and took our influences very seriously. So you come out with a splash and eight eight by ten glossy photograph. I get it. But the fact that it's gone on and on exactly. and, and, and stated its case that the music is there to be improvised with and that we don't show up misappropriating and mishandling our references. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I've, you can't say that we do because the integrity of that band is locked in hard. Absolutely. And it's shown, and I think even early detractors know that now. Mm-hmm. 15 years later, 10 years later, well, one that- by one, it's like, wait a minute now, maybe I need to rethink... And I'm not saying that with any ego, because you don't have to like it at all. I mean, flat out, hell yeah, if you don't like it. But you're going to come and see the Bad Plus, you're going to hear us play, I'm sorry, man. Yeah. But you're not going to walk away and go, that's a pretty lightweight version of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> then you've never seen it. Yeah. Or you've never listened to the records. Right. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. Um, there, there's, there's, there's a sort of like uh, tradition or, or sort of like region of, like heavy stuff that we have not quite touched on that I kind of just want to get your sure. Take on. Sorry to keep rambling. Oh no, no, I hope this is good stuff. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Um, there's a couple little like regions that I want to just like throw out and get like your kind sure. Of, I'll like, keep it shorter. Take on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let let's say like you, you briefly mentioned Anthrax, but I'm curious about the whole uh, Lars Dave Lombardo '80s double bass thrash type thing, like. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about those drummers and that whole thing? Well, obviously Lombardo and and Lars and all those guys that that, that, that were dealing in that in that zone um, uh, with just the straight, more straight double kick, blast beat, you know, like you know Lars Kill 'Em All, for instance. I thought was really some. I mean, I I, I love the proggier elements of Metallica. Oh, they're, me they're they're sworn prog rock guys of <laughs> yeah. course as we know in fact um i enjoyed the record that, that they came back with a few years ago death Mag- magnetic oh, yeah. i thought had 
it brought back a little bit more of that raw uh, frog element that I liked in them at the beginning. I, uh, simply that I was never a double bass guy. I had moved on from, like I said, I, I loved um, Nico McBrain and, and Vinnie Apice f- partly because it sort of was dealing with this sort of setup that I could wrap my brain around. Totally. I mean, I didn't want to have 65 toms and yeah. all these things to lug around to gigs. But man, I would go back and listen to some of those records and you know, you're listening to Slayer records or you're listening to even... Um, um, Pantera or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're dealing with Vinnie Paul, rest in peace, recently. Yeah. Um, it, to me, I, I, there's no way you can deny the mastery of the idiom and the sort of relentless physicality of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Not to mention when you get into the outgrowth of those guys, like the, they're like the godfathers of this thing, and then you're getting all this stuff, you know, in, in the, the last 20 years of death metal where it's become... I mean, you could easily put Meshuggah up there. It sounds like it, it, you could say that it sounds like a Conlon Nan Carol percussion piece. <laughs> I mean, it's so progressive. It's so highest level. Yeah. Um, polyrhythmic and, and um, I mean, completely ludicrous technical yeah. situations going on there <laughs> with some of the drumming in, in a lot of death metal today and a lot of progressive metal. That of course they have every they have Lombardo and everybody to thank mm-hmm. for this sort of like entree into the combination of this onslaught of double kicks with this sort of like straight up prog references. Right, 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 right. So I guess that's all I have to say about that zone. I mean, that to me that was, you know, you you could not have been <laughs> you could not have been through that era without being arrested by yeah, the sort totally. of like onslaught of that technically and again stamina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This the stamina of the whole thing. In fact, watching the Metallica documentary and you're watching Lars Ulrich deal at his age at that point, mm-hmm. which was maybe even 10 years ago, whatever that documentary was, which yeah. I thought was fantastic. Oh, yeah, I love that movie, yeah. Um, he's sort of like, can I take a break now? He's trying to deal with the speed of what he used to do know, almost. It's crazy. It's almost like, man, that's not a young, that's not an older man's game, I don't think. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I, I kudos to him for even hanging to it this is for day, Lombardo, Lombardo seems ageless. I know he's the one. He's yeah. the one that seems ageless, and I guess yeah. that's why you could say that Lombardo has so much respect from even I suppose some of this jazz community, like Dan Weiss and people like that. Where Lombardo's the daddy of sort of like even pre his relationships to Zorn and Painkiller and all these other things. It's like Lombardo is sort of this other figure that sort of embraces the avant garde and all these other things. I don't want to step. I don't want to say anything that 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 I don't know. But I, it's almost like Lombardo is so humble that he almost doesn't realize why all these guys dig him so much. Yeah, he's just sort of out there throwing down. He is. Yeah. I even just did the Zorn Bagatelle show. I was on that show at Skirball last year. Um, I was playing a couple of John's Bagatelles, and and there was um, Lombardo with the. With the Bagatelles band, you know, he was like the house. The house. How, how was it? And it was with, um, and it was, um, it, it was with John and Dave Douglas and and uh, Greg Cohn, and then um, it was double drums with. Um, it was uh, Calvin Weston. Yeah. And there's Lombardo and Calvin Weston just onslaught. I mean, the Calvin Weston thing enough is just so brilliantly unhinged, mm-hmm. and then you have Lombardo back there just. Brrrr. <laughs> it's just like Dave's ageless. Were seems. they? Were they? Improvising a lot. Or, or it they, seemed like they were playing some of the the, the arrangements of the Vagatelles that, so that were right for that Lombardo's yeah. vibe, and Calvin Weston kind of filling in the sort of Shannon language. Maybe I'm not to say that Calvin doesn't have his own language, but yeah. some of this other language that has nothing to do with where Lombardo's coming from, but also but spiritually is in the same realm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it felt very seamless and unbelievable what they were mm-hmm. playing together. Dave doesn't seem, you know, Lombardo didn't seem very concerned with the idea that all these jazz guys are all around him throwing all this other language in there. He's just dealing in his scene. Absolutely. He also doesn't seem to be like going like, maybe I should do this other thing. No. He's just like, no, this is what I do, and I do it. I do it basically the best. Yeah, yes, I would say so. And so, like, what you know? Yeah. And I met him that night. I was just like, man, you're just meeting one of the great heroes of a genre that is just like, that's what I do, and I just, I don't have any problem just doing this better than anybody forever. Yeah. Hell yeah. You know. So I mean, I was. It was like to me, it's like meeting any great master of mm-hmm. any genre. Yeah. It was like. Dan and I were both like, can I get a picture? You know, <laughs> I have my picture with me and Dan Lombardo. It was amazing. That's, that's so cool. Um, the, the, there's like another sort of like region uh, of, of, of stuff that I was kind of curious, like where it was on your radar. Like it's kind of like a thing that goes from like, say, Don Caballero up through like... Um, like Hella, Deerhoof, Lightning Bolt, like all the, sure. all this kind of like I don't like I don't know maybe like mathy indie something like like are those like let's say okay so there's there's big drummers in all these bands like Damon Shea from Don Cab, Zach Hill from Hella, Greg Sane from Deerhoof, and Brian Chippendale from Lightning Bolt. Like are, are like are, are any of those bands or drummers like, pe- like yes punk? I I would say of the ones you mentioned I would put the whoever the cat is in Dillinger Escape Plan to, okay. Or there have been many. There's so Max of, lot, is... A lot of different ones. Uh, Max... Uh, uh, I don't know who the last one was. Chris Penny was like the original guy. Yep, who sort of he was amazing. Yeah. And and um, I can't... I, I, my brain is gone right now. Yeah. But Zach Hill is heavy. You're talking about the guy in Hella. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've talked about him once or twice before. I think he's... I think he's... Um, oddly, somehow still mysterious to I mean, well not oddly that he's mysterious but you know he's just sort of like one of those northern california yeah. entities that <laughs> that that could probably terrify anyone yeah on any given night that plays the drums um because of the uniquely personal from the kit to the approach the hella um that what he did there and what he's done with whatever he's doing yeah. anywhere uh, the the thing he's doing with um name the thing he's doing death grips yeah death yeah. grips is so cool yeah um so I'm a fan and I've actually talked about him before I've never met him but um I feel that sort of like because I feel it's also very hyper arranged you know I I I I, I don't want to say he's not an improviser but I know he's definitely worked out every whatever patterns he's using and whatever he's, which I just think is wonderful. To me, it, it reminds me of some of the best contemporary classical music yeah. that, that's um, that's really hyper-arranged percussion society music. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Takamitsu and all these other ideas. It's mm-hmm. things I've studied and, and, and been really heavily into. Um, I would put Hella in that category of this sort of Northern California noise punk beatdown version of the most <laughs> mathy, indecipherable, speed of arrangement <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, ferocity that you cannot you cannot not go wow mm-hmm. so immediately I would yeah. say I have just a ton of respect for it all the groups you just mentioned and like I said Dillinger Escape Plan as well for me was like whoa <laughs> 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 alright guys yeah. you know and then I, I the safe space to retreat to is like well I can still play Stardust you know with my brushes and right, play right. pretty well you know it's like yeah, you, yeah. you have a you, you retreat to a space where like what if you were only 
if what if it was just like you versus hella yeah, yeah. and you're just like you could only play that music you know what i mean yeah it's like good luck right those guys are gonna fucking mow you over you you, you have no prayer mm. so you better bring it on the other stuff the other, right, 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 right. and so i always feel comfortable saying well you know i improvise and can and i can play up-tempo bebop and i can play all these other things and i can play odd time signatures and i can play under a soloist playing 95 courses of all the things you are yeah, pretty yeah. convincingly so i'm cool i can also play hyper arranged math rock and i can also do these things but you, you take you take a cat like that and it's like that's what he does so you're speaking about lombardo you can't sit there and say like you can't you know i can listen to ed blackwell and think he's the master and master master and i can see think the exact same of listening to a hella record and go well that cat's got this thing and yeah. good luck getting in there and dealing on a higher level than that. Totally. And a lot of that school that you mentioned right now, I have incredible respect for all those guys. Mm. And you can even say Mars Volta could be even a part of that Absolutely. camp as well. Yeah. When they, yeah. When they first came out, I was like, that made your head turn a little bit. Like, mm. not only clearly so into some prog elements of things, but also to me, that was like if you took a Fishbone record and went like, you fed it amphetamines and you fed it some sort of sunlight from Northern California or something yeah. at the drive-in, all these guys, you know, some yeah. Texas light or whatever. And you just turned it out on people on Letterman. It's like, what the fuck are you seeing? Yeah. You know, it's amazing. And, um, you know, a good friend of mine is the drummer, Dave Elitch, who's oh, yeah, one of the yeah, last drummers of, last, last drummers of Mars Volta, who I thought was wonderful in the yeah. band. I mean, you know, you got these rabid fans of these bands where they, they don't, they're the Thomas Pridgen is the only, or well, John Theodore is a, too. that anti-mask. Yeah. Awesome. Anti-mask and, yeah. and, and, um, you know, Dave's an incredible drummer. Yeah who's a student of that language, uh, really astutely. But he's also a huge jazz head, even though he doesn't play a lot of jazz. He's at every show I've ever done in L.A. religiously. I'm not saying yeah. like he's that makes him cool or great. I'm no, saying, no, no, though, yeah, he, he's, he's a very eclectic taste in mm -hmm. music and art, and you can hear it in his playing. So, again, I'm going to say, yeah, that's an area of, of the music that I think the gang fond inhabits sometimes, mm -hmm. whereas those bands won't touch some things that also sound West African at times, like where we will, sure. or from a golden age of noise rock like pure ubu, post-rock, yeah, 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 things like that. We're coming out of that zone as well. Mm -hmm. Captain Beefheart would be another space that I would say is the godfather of some of these ideas. Yep, absolutely. Um, I would say that I will put some several Captain Beefheart records, including the last two ice cream for crow and dock of the radar station or reverse that order but yeah as some of my most important records mm. that i love you know ink mathematics for instance what is going on in the drums there <laughs> cliff martinez is a genius on yeah. those records you know and so again uh, here i am i could sit and talk to you about clifford brown too the same way i'm going to sit and talk to you about um or my love of ed thigpen you know i can yeah. sit there and talk and i just don't see that it's not that it's not like come on you know but zach hill and all these other guys is just like come on i mean that you can't mess with that that mm -hmm. is like that's a personal language that's done on the highest level well just this is something i'm wondering like do you feel like as a drummer okay because you're talking about viewing say dillinger or, or zach and, and saying oh i i can't like that's further than i could go in that direction or something like that like do you feel like do you feel like a, a drum like a drummer or anyone do you feel like you at some point have to choose a side and you're like ultimately like you, you sort of cast your lot with jazz or you've cast your lot with rock and, and you're ultimately more on one than the other or you don't think about it like that at all? I don't think about it like that. Yeah. I mean I, I, I sometimes I see that a lot of these guys that we're talking about, they don't do a lot other than that. Yeah. Um I will say that 
if I want, I'm going to say this with all humility. If I threw my hat in the ring and I went for it on that front, I believe I can play that music. Yeah. Um, I, I know the elements of what's going on technically. Sure. That does not mean that I can jump in on the hella gig with minimal um, information <laughs> yeah. and deal even close to that level. Totally. Because of how personal it is. You know, and so for me, the thing that I love about that music is to me, that's like prime. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like neighborhood music. It's, it's like they're making their own music. Yeah. It's not coming out of like a mentoring program somewhere or some sort of like study of, you know, Bill Evans harmony. It's their music. It's a musical statement coming from those cats. Absolutely. And yeah. from those schools and from those areas of the world. Yeah. And, you know, it can be emulated, it can be dealt with, but that's first circle right there. Those yeah. guys are coming out of that zone. And um, so that's how I think about it. It's like, like folk music or something. Yeah, exactly. It's a very sophisticated folk music because I think a lot of, just like jazz is the most sophisticated, it's like, yeah. just like some of the country blues is the most sophisticated rhythmic music I've ever heard. When I listen to Sun House, I'm like, okay, deal with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, uh, I would say that I understand what's happening technically, I do play some of these things, and you—if you see the bad place, see any—I'm dealing with different rhythmic approaches Absolutely. and different white noise elements, and definitely yeah. uh, yes. And and even in the gang font, we're dealing with that. We're dealing with whatever. Do I deal on the level of doing this stuff full on, committed, nonstop, twenty four seven? That's the thing they do. Yeah, it's yeah. coming from this zone. That's where you have to say that. That's 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 a music where. I don't question whether or not they should also be able to play brushes and be able to play stardust totally. and be able to play all the things you are and be able yeah. to play. Oh, can you back big up? Yeah, but man, can you swing or can you <laughs> can you back up Brad Meldau or can you? You know, I never even think like I've never thought like that in my life. Yeah, everyone has like you can't. There's not one yardstick or something. Yeah, like it's just like how. Yeah. Like, what are you doing with your thing? Yeah, like I say, in the frailness of my ego, I could sit there and say to myself, "Well, after Zach Hill mows me down, <laughs> I can simply say like, hey, well, you know, Zach Hill can't play old new dreams." Right. I mean, maybe he can, but I've never heard him do it. Yeah. You know, or maybe he can't. Maybe he can't like swing. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But I don't care right, either. It's, not, it's just my own little personal. Yeah. Well, I can, you know, but I can sit and play. You know, I can, you know, and I know I know Henry Threadgill's music inside and out, and I've dealt with those rhythms, and I've dealt with Steve Coleman, and I've dealt with M bass, and I've dealt with all this information yeah, yeah. because I love improvising, and I love playing odd rhythms, and I love swinging, and I love doing these things. Totally. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Zach Hill cares about that at all, or the guy from Deerhoof cares about that at all. Yeah. That's fine. That's completely fine. Or right. maybe they do, and it feeds into the way that they play. Well, yeah, it's you not know? about like checking off these boxes, like yeah. competency. Not at in, all. In, in... I just love playing all music. That's just where I come from. Right. You know, if I'm playing, if I, you know, I've recorded and played a lot of music, and I've recorded and played contemporary classical music. Mm -hmm. I've worked with big ensembles. Yeah, yeah. I've recorded and played straight ahead jazz. I've recorded and played avant-garde jazz, rock music, hard rock music, metal, prog music, noise rock, punk. To me, I want to play it all as long as I still can, and I want to play it honestly as long as I Absolutely. still can. You know. Before we stop, because I know we have to stop, but that can can you tell me really quick about that band that Craig mentioned? Is that a, a important part of this chapter, the Salpine thing? It, the only part of that, for, <laughs> that the only part of that that's important is number one. I met Eric Fratsky through that, who okay. became the bassist of Fatbiab, one of my musical heroes. Eric Fratsky, who's an incredible guitar player in the Zebulon gang. Zebulon Pike, yeah. Zebulon Pike is a band that everyone should check Unbelievable. out. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. In fact, Dan Weiss, um, Stair Baby. I mean, you put Zebulon Pike in there, that language is in there. I mean, Zebulon yeah. Pike's got like it sounds like a Bartok string quartet half the time yeah. but just, real real 70s 
metal sound. Like I, I put on that record the other day, and was like, "Holy shit!" That, yeah, the newest one, like it's it unreal. Absolutely blows my mind. Every one of them is unreal. <laughs> Space is the corpse of time is unbelievable as well. Yeah. If you've heard that one, that one still gets me like, "Whoa!" You know, twenty-eight minute tunes, so unbelievable good. through through composed, arranged. Eric Fratsky, check him out. He plays guitar in my band, the Dave King Trucking Company. Absolutely, and he's in the Gang Font, founding member of the Gang Font. Um, you know, um, this, this group was called Salpine and the Pioneers of Bird Illustration. So it had that healthy dose of 90s Frank Zappa E irony. But at the same time, we were dealing with, you know, this sort of like um, lots of different styles of music smashed into one. Not in that Zorn Naked City style, much more just like the idea that it, that it, it, could, it could veer into real punk elements and real mathy elements and real metal elements um, quite quickly and deftly. And I think that Craig saw it in its only year of existence would have been 1995. Wow. And I think it rocked. I, oh, I guess it might have rocked him a little bit. It did. It did. We played some like fringe festivals and shit like that because it was, it was, it was pre Hella, pre these things using some of these very like, what is that arrangement? Oh, mathy. Totally. Whatever. And with a heavy side to it, with a real heavy side to it. But it's unrecorded. And it's only a handful of shows ever appeared, and it was sort of like, what was that? And it's a band that also included theatrics that would be considered punk or even contemporary classical theatrics, John Cage level, where mm -hmm. we had a series of chords that were very atonal played in a sequence. It's sort of been almost like a Cajian yeah, yeah. thing that, that then it would stop, and then you'd sit there, and if there was one sound that came from the audience, the cycle started again. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this may sound like some tomfoolery, but actually it was a very high tension level of performance art. Yeah. So if you can imagine a cycle begins again where he's just going boom, boom, ding, ta, ding, ta. So it's an odd rhythm. Right, right, right. A serial rhythm that's like, what is that to begin with? Played, played exactly together. And then it ends and you're sitting there on stage. And you'd hear like one clap. It starts instantly. <laughs> Whoever... You have to hear it, and everyone starts together. So then the audience is realizing it becomes very silent. Craig could have been at this show, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it's like the audience is attempting to be silent because it will not stop. Mm -hmm. So this was the entire show. Mm. So it got so uncomfortable because pretty soon people started like saying, fuck you. And then we'd start again. Mm. Start again. Now this seems like, oh, some youthful avant-garde but it, it, I'd never felt that much tension being on stage playing anything mm -hmm. from the noisiest drone blowing out sound systems you, you know to 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 um, I was like this must be what Cage was after as far as like our closest thing we could get to of right. like feeling this sort of angst from the audience yeah. <laughs> it was heavy yeah so that band did that I remember that was a vibe right, right, right. and it had finally ended after 40 some minutes of cycling that um, it was silence and then we left the stage we would wait a certain amount of time and we were done yeah yeah i don't know so that was that band <laughs> that might be that might be a good place to wrap it yeah, perfect just yeah awesome thank you Hank. all right cool thank you very much all right that's it Thank you so much for listening. A huge thanks to Dave for his time and to Tim Byrne for hosting. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode of the Heavy Metal Bebop podcast coming soon.